Hello friends, welcome to episode 86, The End of Meat. This is the second part of a quintet that I'm doing, basically about huge, big structural changes. I've done trilogies before, as you may remember from the first season of the podcast, a little bit more common than it has been for the second season. But this is the first quintet that I've ever done. That's five episodes about big structural changes, almost going to sound like science fiction. So last time it was about the end of money, the end of work, possibly. Pray to God, let's hope so. This is going to be about the end of meat. And this is from somebody who eats a lot of meat. And I'm not in any way, shape, or form a vegetarian. And I eat more meat than the average person. And the average American eats a lot of meat. Before the season started, I wrote down a lot of different ideas of episodes I might do or would hope to do and could be interesting to do. And I got to almost none of them during uh, 2020 because of the fluid riots and the elections and, of course, coronavirus. And so the big things kept kind of shifting it to where it would have almost been odd to spend a week talking about something that wasn't necessarily time sensitive or urgent or anything. And so I had all these ideas. I'm like, wow, there's like 10 episodes that I haven't even gotten around to do or whatever. In 84, I asked, uh, can America get big things done anymore? Well, Alabama liberals sure can. I'm going to now get big things done by going and talking about the biggest issues around and possibly, hopefully, be interesting. And of course, I'm in a joyful mood because California is finally lifting some of the coronavirus restrictions. For over a year, it's like I've been in jail. I mean, really and truly, and people say, well, that's overdramatic. It is overdramatic. I don't mean to make light of it or anything, but it sucks. I mean, I don't think a lot of people have downplayed how much it, it has sucked. And they say, well, you know, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And now they're reopening everything. And so you run out and you're like, oh, yes, I'll go to this theater by my house. It's closed for good. The whole chain went bankrupt. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'll go to this restaurant that I love. It's closed for good. They folded up and left. It doesn't matter. I'll go to this other place for the kids. I'll take them to their favorite play place. Oh, it's closed for good. The whole chain went bankrupt. So you see, again, where Los Angeles had the strictest lockdowns in the country. They really did. For about a year, nothing has been able to generate money or make money. And a lot of businesses have uh, closed for good. They've waited until they were supposed to reopen and then said, oh, we don't really have the money to reopen. And so you have uh, two or three kids play places we used to love that are gone to, restaurants that uh, have just folded for good because who could make, who could survive really in the restaurant business, which is so expensive anyway. Rent is really high to rent a restaurant in, especially in Los Angeles, and then not make any money for basically a year. So we have a situation where things are opening back up, and so it's almost like, are we going to go back to normal? What would be normal at this point? Is it going to be like it was in 2019? I sure like to think that it would be, but I don't think it has been. The idea of being able to see a new human face for the first time in a year, you know, I'm, I'm now able to go outside and walk around, and it's odd because some people are still really sticking to the COVID protocols, and some people aren't. There's, we're in sort of a, a gray area and a gray zone. The first of 2019, like February, March, and April, I could see people kind of resisting it. Like they might have been working from home, but if they were going out for a walk or something, unless the store required them to wear a mask, they probably weren't wearing one. And then it came to be kind of overkill where it was legally required to. You wouldn't see people even in a car by themselves without a mask. Like they could be driving in a car by themselves, windows up, and still have a mask on. And so they went from basically not wanting to do it, being like, masks are bullshit, to being like, if you don't wear a mask, you're dead to me, you know? And it flipped around like that. Now it's in a gray area where you're out on the street. Some people are wearing them, some people aren't. And if I'm walking down the street, I might see a woman jogging and she might cross the street. And I like to think it's because of the masks and maybe not wanting to catch COVID. I like to think it's not because I'm terrifying or something like that. So, but yeah, people are crossing the street if they see each other. Two guys will see each other and just sort of walk. And there's almost like this game of chicken, like, okay, are we going to cross the street from each other? 
Are we going to put our shirt over our mouths? Like neither one of us wants to wear a mask. It's just been interesting to see the end of it. I went to a store the other day and saw like two people literally making out outside the store, like total PDA, full on making out. Just, and I'm, I was like, yes, strangers are able to gross me out again. I almost gave them a round of applause. I was so excited to see it. I'm just glad that now a stranger can actually bother me. Like, I mean, it sounds like a weird thing to be like, now PDA is back. I mean, I'm so excited. What do you think people would do if I just ran around licking everybody's face, you know, just from when, just went around, just been like, I'm so happy that there's no fucking COVID restrictions anymore. Just go around licking people's face. I'd probably be arrested on the spot. Los Angeles, I'd probably be in jail for a year. Personally, I'm very relieved to see the protocols and to have COVID be over. And everybody's like, oh no, COVID's not over. I'm like, yep, it's over. It's over. They're like, no, no, you don't understand. There's this new strain out of India that's killing everybody. Oh, yep, COVID's over. Yep. Where do you want to go to on vacation? Want to get on a plane? Where do you want to go? Well, let's go somewhere. They're like, no, you don't understand. There, there's still half of America's not vaccinated. Yep, COVID's done. Let's uh, let's move on with it. Let's wrap it up and go on with it. They're like, no, you, you don't understand. There's still 500 people a day dying from COVID. I'm like, okay, like I said, COVID is done. Goodbye, COVID. And I know that it's not done. There's a new strain out of India that's killing people. They're starting to shut down parts of southern China. I haven't seen that much on the American news just yet, but southern China, the places that were shut down during the first strand, they're starting to shut them down again. That's just a little FYI. So could we see COVID come back in a major way with an even deadlier new strain that's totally going to get past the virus? Well, let's hope not, but it definitely could happen. In the last episode, I talked about the end of work, the end of terrible jobs and things like that. And I was watching this movie Woody Allen made called Deconstructing Harry. And in it, he picks up a prostitute. A prostitute comes over to his house and he's like, do you like being a prostitute? She's like, I had beats the hell out of waitressing or whatever. And he goes, oh my God, every prostitute says that. I, it's better than waitressing. Waitressing must be the worst fucking job in the world. And that made me laugh because it kind of is the worst job in the world. And of course, that's adjacent to food production and labor and that's one of those jobs most of the worst jobs in the world are adjacent to food production and that could be something like waitressing where you may not think about it that way but you're still serving people food fast food where you're serving people burgers and chicken sandwiches all day and then the further down the chain fishery jobs you see all these shows like the deadliest catch where the crab fishermen it's like a job that you could easily die on may not be a job where you necessarily are, are wanting to glamorize or wanting people to go into. It seems like you could definitely automate that to an extent so people are not getting killed trying to catch a fucking crab for somebody in a restaurant to eat. Farming, so this is like corn, soybeans, things like that. And then ranching, meat production. And so most of the worst jobs that you can think of, it's the jobs that they have a hard time filling are in farming and ranching. They said things like, we're paying people. We can't get them to show up in California. California's got all these farming jobs that we can't fill. So it's funny that California has the highest illegal immigrant population in the country. They supposedly, and they, they don't exactly know, but they estimate that California has more immigrants who came here illegally than anywhere else in the country. And yet they still can't fill their farming jobs because nobody wants to do it. Even the people say, well, we need, we need more immigrants to come here and do these farming jobs. They don't want to do it. Okay, they go and they work that shit for a couple months, they quit. You know, nobody wants to do that because it's, even if you're paying people, and they're now paying people very good money in California to do farming jobs, better than a lot of these other shit jobs, but people just don't like it. They don't want to do it. So that would be a very clear case where automation may be a better thing. And then you have meat production. So as I mentioned in the last couple episodes, Marshall County, Alabama and Northeast Alabama is where a lot of chicken comes from. There's six huge chicken plants in the county that I'm from. And that's why, like, I knew that illegal immigration was a very big deal to a lot of people. 
Okay, I knew it was like kind of a big thing because in Marshall County, some counties around it, I mean, the Latino population went from basically 5% to 40% in about 10 years. I mean, it just skyrocketed. And it was almost exclusively illegal labor, undocumented labor, however you like to phrase it. People get a little too anal about that in my case. I'm like, illegal immigrants? Like, you mean undocumented immigrants? No, I mean illegal because undocumented is not really correct. Because first of all, two thirds of illegal immigrants, they do they did have documents when they came here. They had a student visa or a travel visa or a work visa, and then it expired and they just never left. They came here on a plane and then they had a temporary permit, it expired and they never left. They did come here with some documents that have now expired. Plus, I think it's a misnomer. I think it's one of those things that like the people saying that, they already are supportive. So it doesn't really matter. Like you're not gonna say, oh, I, I left my documents in my other country. Let me just run back and get them. If you say that, honestly, it, it's already gonna be like somebody who would be more supportive of it. So it's like, you're not really, these kind of word games I think that liberals use, they're just policing each other with them. Half the country's never gonna say undocumented and they're gonna wait until liberals flip it into something else. Because keep in mind, forever, Spanish people were just called, you know, Spanish speaking or Latin or what have you. Then it became, no, let's do Hispanic. I'm not that old, but I mean, it was called that, you know, for years and years. And then it became, no, it's not Hispanic anymore. It's Latino. And now Latino is sexist. And now they want to do Latinx, even though nobody outside the United States uses these terms. I mean, it's almost something that white American liberals have invented for themselves to police each other. And the rest of the world doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. And they don't use these terms. So it's a little bit like, you know, don't get so caught up in that. But in Marshall County, Alabama, you basically had Tyson Plant, Purdue, Gold Kissed. And I think the basic trend for poultry plants, and it's the same for a lot of meatpacking jobs, is the management is white and the workers are brown. Central American, Mexican, sometimes South American, but they're pretty much exclusively Spanish speaking. And then the management jobs are whiter. So like a guy on our street, he had a huge, big Tyson truck. It was like a gleaming white, fully loaded, new model truck with the big Tyson logo on the side of it. It looked like a nice truck. He had decent benefits. Pretty good job, I mean, for that area. Not a terrible job. But the workers, the people kind of at the bottom, their job is terrible. And I did know some white people who did that. I don't want to make it sound like what a lot of the media says, where they're like, oh, well, these people are doing jobs nobody wants to do. White people still do these jobs. And I think that really breeds a resentment into the white working class when they hear shit like that. Because they're like, no, we're still in meatpacking and we're still in farming and we're still, in, we're still doing this shit that New York Times writers have left behind and act like we don't do anymore because they don't have to do it. They know nothing about it, really. They have no real connection to it. Somebody like John Oliver, he can do an entire episode about meatpacking, but he has no real affinity for this. He doesn't understand the culture of these rural areas that he talks about all the time, that he knows really nothing about, truthfully. Most people in the American media know very little about the Southeast and the rural Southeast. Rural America generally speaking, kind of shut out of the culture in a lot of ways. And that's why so many people in it, they don't really understand it and they don't know much about it. And so it wasn't a huge surprise to me when Trump started to get bigger and bigger, mostly on the issue of immigration, because I can remember like growing up, it would be like there were two towns. There was the white town and the white part of the county, and then the part where pretty much all of the Latin people lived, right? And it had Spanish speaking banks and check cashing places and grocery stores. I mean, it was almost like an Indian reservation. That's kind of what it reminds me of, to where it would be like all the businesses were in Spanish and the neighborhoods themselves would be almost exclusively. And it was a little bit like two towns in a certain way. 
And except for maybe the public school system and a couple other places, they really didn't mix and mingle at all. I mean, they were totally pretty separate, pretty much. And I think there was a resentment that bred, well, our town's changing, and there's all this stuff that's now in Spanish. And of course, the classic example was a guy would say, well, I went to the grocery store, and I saw a Mexican mother pay, uh, you know, with WIC or food stamps or something like that. And that just drove me nuts because I work for a living and they pay, they get all this government help and government aid. There was always this tension of somehow in their minds, people would view it as, well, the Mexicans and the Guatemalans, they are welfare bums. They get more government help. They get more benefits. They don't pay taxes. It didn't matter that that wasn't really the case. That's not really true. That's just how people perceived it as we were born here. We're here legally. We grew up here, and yet we're getting the shaft because we work for a living. We don't get all these programs, and these other people who just showed up. It's like having a squatter in your house, and they won't leave, and they take everything for free. They eat your food. They drink your water. They use your bathroom. They take a dump, and they won't leave, and they get all this help. And so that was sort of the mentality, and that was mostly due to meatpacking because meatpacking hires a lot of illegal labor. Why does it do that? Because it's cheaper. And they can't complain if they get hurt and there's no benefits. And so it drives wages down. And really it's bad for the whole county because having those huge chicken plants there, it it drives the wages down for everybody. There's no good, there's not going to be like great jobs that move into a place like that. It's a little bit like the chicken plants don't want them to. They want to be able to control the labor force. They want to be able to keep wages very flat, very low. A lot of uneducated workers, a lot of people that can't complain, a lot of people that will do anything for a job. With the extra unemployment checks, there's this big kerfluffle with Republicans about, oh, they don't want to give the $600 a week unemployment bonuses. Well, that's because they want to keep wages as low as they possibly can. And Republicans have fought and fought and fought Democrats and all these working class programs forever because they need wages to stay stagnant. They need people to be desperate and willing to do anything for a job. So as I mentioned in the last episode, when I was 16, I had a job that I got injured on. I mean, I got electrocuted. I got stabbed. My my knees hurt. There was hot grease that flew into my eye, gave me permanent eye damage. And you think about why are you doing all this shit for $100 a week, $200 a week? Because that's what the minimum wage, even if you work 30 hours a week, I mean, you're still not going to make more than about two, $300 a week. On that time, it was about seven bucks an hour after taxes and things. And so you think the wages are so bad. Why am I even doing this? Why even go to work and put up with this abuse? They want people to feel desperate. They want people to feel like any job is a good job. Literally any job, no matter what it is. Oh, you're mopping uh, shit off the street and how much you getting paid for it? Two bucks an hour. At least you have a job. And it doesn't matter that there's opportunity cost. So everything that you're doing at a very, very low wage, there's opportunity cost because that means you're not doing something else that you could be doing. It doesn't matter. And so all these stupid jobs that you have that just pay very low and have no benefits and there's no future in them. I once worked at, for people living with Alabama, there's a TV affiliate. I think it's an NBC affiliate, but it was in Huntsville. And I worked there. I want to say it was NBC, but I'm not, God, it's been so long ago, I can barely remember. But Brad Travis was the weatherman. I remember that aspect of it. Mark Thornhill was the anchor at the time. I was the teleprompter guy. I would scroll through the teleprompter and the anchors would read the words. And of course, this has probably been automated now. I don't know if somebody still gets paid to do this. But that was a decent job to me, but it paid so little. I basically lost money because what they wanted you to do was show up at 4.30 for the five o'clock news broadcast. So you you do it at five and six. And then at 6.30, they wanted you to take like a huge break till 9.30. 9.30 be there for the 10 o'clock broadcast. You had to block out your time. Like, okay, I need to be there from 4.30 to about 10.30 
because they want you to clock out the second the 10.30 broadcast is over. But that's on paper. You think like, oh, well, I'm going to get paid for six hours. No, because they want you to leave. They want you to clock out at 6.30 and not clock back in until 9.30. And so even though your whole day was being used doing this job, there would be like a three-hour gap where you receive no wages in between. And you're in Huntsville, so it's like, what are you going to do? You drive around, you go to the mall, maybe go to a movie if the schedule works out, maybe go out to eat. I mean, you're looking for things to do for three hours just to fill time because you're there in a city you don't live in, but you have to find something to do. So really, I lost money because I'm spending money in that three-hour chunk in addition to driving to work and back. But I mean, that's an example of, I kind of said like, well, you know, don't you think it's bullshit that we don't get paid for the three hours in between the 6.30, bro- the six o'clock broadcast and the 10 o'clock broadcast and the dudes that worked on the crew, they're like, no, no, man, because you're putting in your dues. This is, a, this is a job. This is an easy job. That's what they'd say. This is an easy job because most jobs in that area are so stressful in terms of like meatpacking or steel production or concrete or construction. It's so bad on the body that a job where you can kind of sit around a lot is very good. And I say, yeah, but how long have you been putting in your dues? Oh, about three years. They string them along being like, hey, you do this now. You do the teleprompter now, and then you'll be the cameraman. You'll be the cameraman, and then you might get on-air talent. You get on-air talent, then you can get a producer credit or something. So they string people along, and it takes them forever to get to that level because the fact that you had guys who were literally just operating a camera or something like that or holding a boom mic or holding a light or something like that, and they've been doing that for three years, they've been doing what I'm doing for three years making that level of wages. And so you think about, well, that's three years of your life that's kind of gone because you weren't doing a government job. You weren't necessarily in school getting like a higher level degree to get something else. There's three years of your life that's disappeared into a job that's dead end with no retirement, no benefits, doesn't pay that great. And I think that that's unfortunately where a lot of the economy's gone to. And people don't think about your time, your opportunity cost, which is the real expense. With something like meatpacking, they really want the labor force to be kind of driven down, beaten down, to be willing to do anything. If you're illegal and you have a job and you lose a thumb, it's not like you can really complain a lot, especially in Alabama where you will get deported. There's no doubt about it. If you go to the hospital, you may be okay with that. If you start talking to a personal injury lawyer and start trying to file a claim, I think you'll be deported before you get a chance to cash it in. That's just my feeling about it or whatever. But the guys who were white and they worked on the floor, they're like, yeah, they treat us like garbage. They kind of don't want us there. And I'm like, yeah, because you could complain. If you were to get injured, you could file a personal injury lawsuit. So it might be one of the few jobs where it's like reverse racism in the sense of they don't really want white people there because if they get hurt, they can sue. And if something really, really bad happens, they can possibly file an OSHA complaint. They can possibly, you know, be a whistleblower or something like that. And so in that way, they kind of don't want you to know what they're doing, really, and especially some of the worst stuff. Unless you're going to eventually get a college degree and possibly be up in the upper levels of management, where then you're invested in the company. If you're making, you know, $65,000 a year, which keep in mind for North Alabama, that's a very good wage. The median wage for that area that I'm from is about thirty grand a year. So what would be poor in Los Angeles? Because that's poverty level in Los Angeles. But there, that's about the median wage. And so if you can be in the chicken plant management, make about 65 grand, even 70K a year, for that area, that's upper middle class. And you're doing pretty good for that area. That's how a whole system can operate. And so when you say these specials about during covid They made all these plant workers work without masks. They made them work side by side. They made them work long hours. They were stressful. They were sweating, probably spreading it to the chicken to some extent. But then if you complain too much about it being North Alabama, they shut down the North Alabama plants. Then where does the meat come from? Mexico, where workers are treated even worse, right? So that modicum of some respect that and 
illegal immigrant or undocumented immigrant may get in North Alabama, they're not even going to get that in Mexico, right? It's such a precarious position that it may behoove us to eat less meat. And this is for multiple reasons. Number one is, of course, the labor force that's required to produce the meat is not treated very well. Then you have other factors such as the environment. People think meat consumption is one of the worst things you can do for the environment. Some studies say that beef production is worse for the environment than cars, fossil fuel-driven cars. It requires a lot of energy to produce every pound of meat. 2.5 pounds of grain is required to produce one pound of meat. And so that's all the water to grow that grain, that's all the sunlight, that's all the energy required to produce that grain to feed the cows. Then there's the deforestation, because you take away the trees so that you can get a nice grassy field for cows to eat if they're free grazing cows. You have an unusual amount of carbon being released from meat production, and it's all meat production, but specifically cows. I think beef is the worst for the environment, or so that's what every study I've ever read has said. There's the grain required to feed the cows, there's the water required to water them, there's the deforestation required for them to graze, and probably a lot of other costs that I'm not thinking about. I know a little bit more about chicken raising than I do about cows and beef. Maybe somebody from Texas can tell me about cows and beef sometime. But with chickens, some of my relatives did that. They had chicken houses. You basically build a chicken house kind of way out the fuck in the middle of, not even like a town necessarily, but in the rural areas, which is where they're from, is the really rural areas. They have a huge chicken house with just hundreds of chickens packed in ass to elbows, and they have to walk through that and breathe in the feathers, the blood, the guts, the, the mites, all this crap. It's not good for you to breathe it in. But they raise the chickens, and then they can sell them to Tyson or Purdue or Goldkiss. But the chicken plants, they draw up a kind of a strict contract. A lot of people who do it right now, they say they don't want their kids to do it. They're like, I don't want my kids doing this because there's no money in it, and it sucks, and Tyson controls it too much. The contracts get worse every single year. It gets better, not worse. They're like, it was a little bit better. Fifty. They're like, you know, when my granddad did it, he was like, well, this job sucks, but now it really sucks because you, the way that the money is structured is just not as good, and there's much more of a corporate control over it than, than there may have been at one point in time. But I can remember going to a chicken house, and I mean, I wasn't inside of it, but just being outside of it, the smell was so bad, I about threw up. And then it's hot as fuck, because it's Alabama. The winters are too cold, the summers are too hot. July in Alabama is just miserable. If you wear, any shirt you wear is going to be see-through. It's going to look like you've been bobbing for apples, because you're just soaked in sweat. You know, it's going to be transparent. You think, did you use a slip and slide? No, I just walked through uh, a field in Alabama in July or something, so there's a ton of humidity it's hot as hell. It's 90 degrees. You know when you can see how hot it is? Because that's how hot it is. Like there's heat waves. You know, like you go outside and you just literally see like the heat rising off of a place. It looks like a mirage or something. Like you watch all those movies where they're set in the desert or something like that. And in the horizon, there's heat waves and a mirage. That's what a lot of places in like Alabama in July look like because, and it's green fields instead of a desert setting. It, it almost looks like you're on acid or something because there's forest and green and all these bright, bright, vibrant colors of yellow and green, but there's heat rising off of them and stuff. And so obviously think about that's not a very good job to be outdoors in the bull and sun, dealing with a bunch of wild animals, clawing, scratching, screeching on top of each other. No way to reason with them. I mean, it's just not a very good job if you think about it. Could there be environmental cost to that on top of it? And then there's the health cost. People think that Americans eat too much meat for their own health. Americans 
kind of at the top of the countries in terms of meat consumption. I believe Australia may be a little bit more than us. They're right by us, but Australia and Hong Kong and some places, we're all kind of neck and neck, but we're right at the top five for meat consumption in the world. Most Americans, they believe, consume over 200 pounds of meat a year. Some studies say 220, some say 270, but over 200 pounds is the average. And that's low for me. I probably eat, like for all the vegetarians and vegans who eat no meat whatsoever, and so we have to compensate for them. If, if they If it's 200 average, I'm probably at 400 pounds of meat per year. I probably eat more than my own body weight in meat every single year. And so when I talk about the end of meat, I'm not saying that from a perspective of a vegetarian or a vegan or somebody that abhors meat. It's kind of odd that I would even be talking about it because I love meat. I eat meat every day and sometimes every meal for every day. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there might be a meat. Probably, I would say, average of two times a day, sometimes three times a day, sometimes four times a day. You just have like a snack and eat like ham as a snack or bacon as a snack or turkey slices as a snack. And so I love meat. When I see that Arby's commercial and it's like, Arby's, we have the meats. I'm like, yes, I'm cheering it on. I went to Arby's. I'm like, give me the meats. They're like, which meats? All of them. Give me all of the meats. I'm buying out your meats. And so I love that Arby's has all these exotic meats that you can't find at a lot of fast food restaurants. I'm the guy that when I go to a new restaurant and they have a meat that I've never seen before, that's what I'm getting. Like if I've never had it, octopus, I'm going to eat that. One time I went to a restaurant and I had kangaroo and it was actually in Northeast Alabama. It was a restaurant in Gunnersville, Alabama, of all places, that served kangaroo. And I was violently ill the next day. Like, I was so sick. Sick. I mean, I think it might have been undercooked or not properly cooked, but I was, like, deathly sick. I mean, you know, if you can't get a good kangaroo steak in Northeast Alabama, I mean, really, where can you get one? I mean, it's they're known for such things now. But, of course, all the vegetarians listening to this are like, you serves you right, asshole, eating kangaroo jack over there. You think you can just munch around on a harmless little animal. And actually, my dad told me that there's some new restaurant close to them that has like animals at the restaurant, like in the back, there's a zoo. So they eat your dinner in this restaurant setting, but outside there's a zoo with like literally a kangaroo and a bunch of wild animals like that. Of course, this is right now. This is not like pre-pandemic. This is this moment. They opened during the pandemic. And so you think about like that's Alabama, right? Like, oh, there's a pandemic that could have been caused from animal to human transmission. Let's center an entire restaurant around having a bunch of wild animals close to the food consumption. It is pretty crazy. Now, now you're learning more about kangaroos in Alabama than you ever wanted to know. I'm just saying that's kind of where I'm at is that if there's a rare animal, that's what I probably eaten a lot of different species. I don't know if there's necessarily a type of animal that I wouldn't try. Everybody's got their own line of where animal abuse is, right? Like animal abuse is one of those cultural issues. I think it is kind of a cultural issue. We don't think about it as one, but it sort of is. I mean, everybody's got their own line of what's okay and what's not okay. Just like with political correctness. There's things people have said to me that I thought were offensive. There's things I've said to people that they think are offensive. There's been stuff in the first, you know, 20 minutes of this podcast people probably would consider offensive. And yet I know I'm going to hear 10 times worse if I go on the internet or if I just walk around talking to people in Alabama, right? I'm going to hear worse than what I just said, right? Everybody's got their own idea of where the line is. And with animals, everybody's got their own idea of where the line is. Because my whole life, I was hearing a lot of stuff about, oh, is this cruelty-free? Like, did this shampoo, did you test it on a rabbit? Did you did you get like the soap suds in the rabbit's eyes or something like that? That's cruel. Animals shouldn't be used for testing. They should only be used for hunting, clothing and food. And then hunting kind of fell by the wayside. People say, oh, hunting is murder. It should only be used for clothing and food. That's all animals should be used for. Then with clothing, it was like, oh, fur is murder and leather is bad. And then there was a huge push to sort of make like 
clothing made out of animals obscene and you know throw red paint on fur or whatever like that and a big pressure on a lot of designers not to use fur and leather in their designs and stuff like that and so now it's just sort of food food's sort of that last can we treat animals however we like and so in 10 15 20 years it wouldn't be surprising to me if there's so many vegans and vegetarians that it almost becomes like the new fur where it's almost like you're eating an animal you're a murderer you're doing something bad and they sort of make that and they kind of do that to an extent already like even in los angeles outside chick-fil-a one time i saw PETA. And Peter was out there raising hell outside Chick-fil-A, talking about it. And this, you know, most people uh, ignored him and are like, we're just trying to get our sandwiches. Please get the fuck out of our way. That would be great. Please and thank you. So they're trying really hard to just act like they're not there. And to be honest, it's a little fake and phony. I have not a ton of respect for Peter because obviously other countries, there's a lot of places they would be afraid to go to. There's just a lot of places like rural Alabama, like rural Arkansas, like other countries can you imagine if they went outside, like, because a lot of pork comes from Mexico. A ton of our meat comes from Mexico and South America. So can you imagine if they went outside, like, a huge Smithfield facility in Mexico, and they're like, pork is murder. Like, they would disappear. Like, there would be no fucking Peter, right? So, like, if there was 12 people out there, within a few days, there'd be zero. And so I kind of don't have a ton of respect for going to, like, a very well-lit, trendy Chick-fil-A in the middle of Los Angeles and raising hell out there where you know they can't really do anything to you, and they're not really the problem anyway. They're just buying a product that exists. Anyway, it's a little fake. I think they've picked battles that they knew were relatively safe. You know, it really boils down to what you consider animal abuse. And what do you consider not okay to do to animals? Where do you stand on animals? And generally on animals, I kind of live above the mind that you should leave them alone. The more you leave them alone and just sort of let them do their thing, the better. But of course, what is an animal's life? Danger. Animals are in danger constantly. I mean, they are constantly being hunted. They're part of the food chain. We exist outside the food chain. They're part of the food chain. And so whenever you people, you shouldn't have a pet rabbit. You should let that rabbit outside. Yeah, outside where it's going to get eaten by a hawk in about two minutes or killed by a snake in about two seconds. Even the circus, when they were shutting down all those circuses, a lot of animal rights people love that. They're like, oh, the circus is terrible. It sucks. Release those elephants back into the wild. Release the elephants back into the wild. They were poached for ivory about two weeks after they got back to Africa, okay? You release animals back to their wild habitat in Africa, where again, there's no PETA. There's not going to be a PETA out there, you know, necessarily trying to stop this stuff going on. So an elephant's going to be poached for ivory. Other animals are going to be killed for their furs. A lot of the animals that the circus was using, they're endangered and they're extinct. And so the more of them that are in the wild, the more vulnerable they are, the easier they could get killed. But you say that and animal people, they just kind of look at you, you know, like they look at you like you're stupid or, or something like they kind of don't think about it as aquariums may be safer for a whale than putting it in the middle of the ocean and letting it get killed by Japanese whalers where they have no jurisdiction. They're like, oh no, we'll go to Japan and we'll fight them. They try to do that, they get, they get arrested and they get sent back home. Sometimes they get beat up. And so then the animal rights movement kind of dies quietly. So even though people point to the United States and they say, well, you consume more meat than anybody, you're worse than animals. I don't know if people will understand how rampant animal abuse is in other countries. There's things that we just would never do here that are just normal. Japanese whaling is a great example. Killing of dolphins in Japan is a great example. China has no fucking respect for animals whatsoever. I mean, they don't care about their people, right? If they want to build a town or a city or a village and a million people are going to be inconvenienced, they better move or they're going to get killed. So if you can kill a million people like it's just nothing, are you going to respect necessarily the natural habitat of the snowy leopard owl, of course not. You're going to poison them all and fucking kill them and just say it's gone, it's done, it's get rid of them. So when people say things like, we got to have animals in their natural habitat, well, it depends how dangerous is their natural habitat. Rhinoceros is in its natural habitat. It's almost extinct. 
It's almost dead. And one day, if artificial intelligence replaces us as the supreme beings on the planet, like we're still out of the food chain, but we're still kind of existing in the same realm as animals. Uh, we're kind of halfway between them. We evolved from animals. We still are animals. One day, if AI evolves from us, which would be similar to the monkeys, we evolved from monkeys and apes. Apes still walk the earth. They have a lot of human-like tendencies and features. You can see apes and ape behavior is the same as, as behavior. You watch a tribe of apes. There's outcasts. There's a leader. You put 12 humans together in a workplace environment. There's an outcast. There's a leader. The same dynamics that they use, we use them all the time. Tribal shaming. Talk a lot about public shaming. They're like, oh, everybody's trying to publicly shame these days. That's tribal shaming. Monkeys do that. Well, there's one monkey that fucks up, does something wrong somehow or another, eats too many bananas or whatever bad monkey bad bobo you're not part of the tribe anymore and the other monkeys do that because it sort of makes them feel better about themselves their status moves up they elevate themselves that's all social media is if i say you're a bad person by default i'm a better person than you and that's what's really behind public shaming the worse you can make somebody else look the better you feel about yourself be like oh well i would never do what that person would do and that's not necessarily new social media didn't create that i'm back in the day if you ever saw like a mass rapist get arrested or some guy who killed a child. Oh, that guy's a child killer. He's a real piece of shit. You know, like there's a lot of people out there being like, no, I'm pro child killings. You know, that guy's a piece of shit. But by pointing it out on the news and having all these stories on the news about a child abduction, missing child, pedophile on the loose, by default, we're saying we're not that. No matter what we do, we cheat on our taxes, but we're not that child killer. And so it was sort of a way to sort of make yourself elevate a little bit. And social media is just that on steroids. People can do that all day, every day. I've seen people, it's almost like you've heard the term humble brag. This is almost like a humble shame. Somebody will come in and say, oh, I don't like Ashley Graham's armpit hair or something like that. And then somebody will come in and be like, well, I guess I'm just a better person than you. You know, no big deal or whatever. And it's it's like they're kind of, and then the next person will come in and say, way to make the story about yourself. I would never do that as they're making the story about themselves. It's very subtle, but you can see it if you really look at it. With meat production, you do have somewhat of a tendency among vegetarians and vegans to kind of think they're better than other people. They do kind of make a big deal about it. If you ever go to a restaurant with a vegan, but is this animal free? And they make sort of a big deal about what hasn't been used with animal products. Oh, did this even touch an egg? Because I sure don't want it if it did, you know, and they sort of kind of put themselves above others at the table and everybody's like, oh, uh, how brave of you or whatever. Like you have to pretend that you give a shit, right? Like you got to pretend that you give two shits about an animal that it would have killed and you don't really. It's funny because the way that they look at me, vegetarians and vegans, the way they look at me is sort of how I look at, like they look at it, me as like a primitive person. Like you're primitive, you're a caveman, you're eating meat when you don't have to, and you're just sort of a savage. And I kind of look at them as simplistic. It's a little simplistic in that your whole world is basically centered around a very childlike kind of view of the world. If I don't eat this pig, I've saved Wilbur from Charlotte's Web. I've saved a babe's life if I'm not the one eating this bacon or whatever. And of course, that pig's dead, whether you eat it or not, it doesn't matter. And I get what they're saying where they're like, yeah, but I don't want to contribute to a system that is bad. And the same fucking people order everything through Amazon. It's amazing to me the amount of stuff people order on Amazon that are liberals crazy because like if you say meat production is bad you will get 10 likes from that there will be a group of vegetarians or vegans that will come in and like that you say and you shouldn't order anything from amazon crickets fucking dead silence you know the worst company on earth and it's just dead silence and crickets and nobody cares so it's just again subjective where do you draw the line where is your personal line some people say well you know keeping a monkey as a pet 
that's evil. You shouldn't have a monkey as a pet or a tiger as a pet. Exotic animals as pets is very wrong. But yet, when I'm in my apartment complex, I see dogs the size of horses out here. I mean, I see some little tiny woman or man with a gigantic ass dog. Some dogs are bigger than they are. And I'm like thinking, you're keeping a baby elephant, but it's called a dog in your tiny apartment. And you don't think that's wrong. But if you went to Alabama and some guy with a hundred acre ranch wanted a pet elephant, oh, that's evil. An elephant on a gigantic ass plot of land in Montana or Alabama or someplace like that, they consider that to be evil, but they can keep Marmaduke or Clifford chained up in their apartment all day, barking its head off. I mean, I see these dogs, you walk past them on the street, roof, 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 roof. they're fucking going nuts and everything. And I'm like, yeah, it's a caged animal. A gigantic dog in a tiny space is a caged animal. I don't look at that as any real difference between keeping a pet monkey, maybe even more cruel because a monkey in an apartment and I don't have one. I'm, I, you know, I say this like I have a bunch of exotic pets. I don't. I'm not that guy from the Tiger King or whatever. Like, I don't have a bunch of exotic pets. I've never owned any. But I'm just saying the people that make such a big deal about like, oh, that guy's got a pet monkey in his two-bedroom house and he treats him like Curious George. I'm like, that monkey has food and shelter and water and is treated like a fucking king compared to most monkeys out there in the jungle. He's not about to get eaten by a leopard constantly. He's not being stalked by a tiger. He's not about to be eaten in the food chain. And he doesn't have to hunt for his food. People say things like, oh, it's cruel. They don't hunt for their food and they enjoy hunting for food. You don't see the animals that starve to death. In the nature documentaries, the leopard catches the antelope. But if he ever doesn't, we say, oh yes, the antelope, it outran the leopard. The leopard didn't eat it. Isn't that great for the antelope? But not so great for the leopard. It could starve to death. And we don't think about that, but animals starve to death constantly. They're in danger constantly. A squirrel that we see out in the park is constantly about to get eaten by a hawk or a falcon. They can sense the danger of a place. And so when you think about the existence of your everyday animal, it's not that great. And human beings, they probably could step in and treat it a lot better, but that's seen as verboten. Leave animals alone and don't touch them. But if there was artificial intelligence, a thousand times smarter than the smartest man on earth, and artificial intelligence could come in and they can solve all of our problems and they could fix it. And they said, well, a lot of humans, they die from cancer. We shouldn't solve that. We should leave humans in their natural element. Now, humans in their natural element, that's the way it's got to be. You know, we don't want to mess with nature, right? And so if they could solve cancer, if they could end wars, if they could end killings, if they could solve climate crisis, I sometimes believe that artificial intelligence will be the only thing that solves climate crisis. You would almost have to bring in the new super beings to solve this and fix it because I don't even know if humans are necessarily capable of solving it. Climate crisis is the biggest issue ever. It's extinction level event. And you go on Twitter and they'll debate Israel for days and they'll debate guns for days and sex and race and gender. If we don't solve climate crisis, we're all fucking dead. I don't know if you can make it more clear than that. I know people are listening to this to me and like, hey, I thought this was going to be a joyful episode. I thought you were excited to talk about something new and coronavirus ending. I am. But I do think that it behooves us to never keep climate crisis on the back burner. It's in the back burner. It's the low flame. And so that's probably half the reason I even want to do this podcast. I'm more motivated to end meat production from an environmental perspective than anything else. Because I could see where it is damaging for the environment. And it probably is bad for the environment. But are the meat substitutes, are they any better necessarily? And I, that's what I'm wondering about. We don't exactly know what's in the meat substitutes. I like that they say, well, it's plant-based. But that could mean anything. 
I mean, we don't know what that means. That could mean that it has 10% corn and 80% asbestos and 10% tobacco rolled into a patty. You know, we don't really know exactly what that means. I think people have gone to meatless substitutes on menus because it's cheaper. It's not because they give a shit about the animals or the environment. It's substantially cheaper for them because their cost of goods to make it is cheaper. They'll say something like, well, uh, a chicken patty for a chicken sandwich, it costs us a dollar and five cents and we sell it for $3 and 50 cents or four bucks. And they'll say, okay, but how much does that meatless patty cost you? Uh, six cents. <laughs> so, so like a chicken breast would be a dollar fifty, and then like the meatless substitute, they'll say, yeah, that's made out of uh, sorghum and uh, and then all these chemicals you can't pronounce, and then a little bit of spinach so we can call it plant-based, and that's 12 cents for us to make that. So the margins are better on these sandwiches. They charge the same for a meatless substitute as they do a meat burger, but it costs them substantially less to produce that. That's why they've begun to do it. I don't think private business necessarily innovates. People say things like, well, you know, capitalism, that solves everything because private business is pressured to innovate. I think they're pressured to make more money and that may be an innovation. It could be, but it's not necessarily an innovation. So when Adam Smith says things like the most efficient system will always prosper, that's not true. And I don't know why people believe that. Classic example, you go on a website and there's all these like ads or something like that. And everybody hates the ads, but that's how they make the money, right? And that's not necessarily like making it more efficient. It's just the only way that they can make any profit off of that. Like you see an article and it's like, oh, the 50 best celebrity bikini pictures or something like that. I mean, what are you going to do? Not click on it? You got to click on it. But you click on it and you're praying to God. You're like, please let it be like one document. It's like 50 pictures in one document and you can scroll down. No, of course not. It's a slideshow. And so you click through the slideshow. You got to do 50 separate clicks because that's how they're making their money because they're counting those as ads. And it's not good for the companies that are advertising because you don't fucking care about those ads at all. Like you're not clicking on a single one of those ads. You're looking at the bikini pictures. But the people who pay for those ads, they're like, oh, wow, this website got a ton of traffic. What is the traffic? It's 100 people that are annoyed as fuck that they have to click 50 times just to see some tits and ass and fabric, you know, because that's all they're really trying to find with that. But instead of it being one single document, you can scroll through. It's 50 separate clicks. So that's an example of how private business wants to make the most money. That's not always the most efficient way. So when people confuse the two, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. Sometimes private business has no incentive to innovate. We see that with fossil fuels all the time. We see that with healthcare all the time. Healthcare has no incentive to really cure diseases. They have incentives to help you treat them, quote unquote, which is why I had to roll my eyes when they said the coronavirus vaccine could be permanent and it could be like the flu shot where every single year we have to go and they try to figure out what the most common variant will be and then work backwards from that. I had to roll my eyes at this because I'm like, this disease that didn't exist is now going to be a permanent part of our lives and a permanent fixture. And Pfizer, rather than do what Jonas Salt did and release the vaccine for free, they're making $15 billion from the vaccine. And if they generate that every single year, oh, well, we now have COVID-20. COVID-20, you got to get your vaccine for that one. Oh, we got, oh, we got COVID-22 over here. You got to get your vaccine for that one. I'm vaccinated. And of course, I wouldn't dare dream of telling people not to go get the vaccine for COVID-19. But when you see it, the second year you get vaccinated, and then in India, they're saying there's a new variant. Maybe next year we'll have a vaccine for that. You can't keep the globe shut down permanently. And it really creates an incentive for the pharmaceutical companies to never really cure this. And to sort of have it be like, oh, we'll just, we'll just treat it like the flu shot. 
And then there'll be 10 more pandemics that are the same fucking way. And people get upset. They say, well, how can you dare say something like that? I, I get in kind of arguments with people about this because there's a lot of liberals that are not questioning this at all. And it's sort of irritating to me. But I'm like, there was SARS. There was MERS. There was swine flu. There was bird flu. There's been all these pandemics where we never had to get vaccinated before. And we didn't shut down the globe for a year. Somehow the Obama administration was able to have pandemics and yet didn't. And they said, yeah, but COVID's different because it was just so much more. I, I understand that. I get it. I fully fucking understand your three points that have been in your head for a year that I've heard over and over again. I fully get that. But when you can have six pandemics during the Obama administration and all of them put together, don't shut down the globe and you don't have to get a vaccine for it. And then to tell people, but COVID-19 is different because we're going to have that forever. And you're going to have to get a separate shot for that every year. And Pfizer is going to make $20 billion every single year, possibly more if there's more pandemics and more variants. It creates a bad value incentive to never get rid of disease. They said something about there's going to be a new Alzheimer's drug that possibly could help treat Alzheimer's. It's the first thing was Alzheimer's drug in 20 years. There's no incentive to cure disease. There's an incentive to treat it, make it expensive, bleed you nice and slow and dry, and that's in healthcare. And so a lot of industries have no real value incentives to innovate. Meatpacking, I think, is only doing it because meatless patties are substantially cheaper. Could it be better for the environment? It definitely should be better for the environment. Could it be better for our health? It may be. Some people swear up and down that a vegan diet and a veg vegetarian diet, that's going to make them live longer while other people don't seem to benefit from it at all. It just depends. It's funny because it, there's a lot of confusion about, is meat bad for you, right? And a lot of different doctors argue about this. It's not a slam dunk like sugar. Sugar, I think, refined sugar has been proven pretty much consistently bad for you. Salt is mostly bad for you. A diet that would be overly high in salt would be bad for you. But with meat, it's there's a lot of debate about it to where it's like, well, it could be good for your brain because of the nutrients from meat, but it could be bad for your heart because of the cholesterol, the excess fat, bad stuff on the chambers of your heart. Then you flip it back around and say, yeah, but red meat, that could cause Alzheimer's. So it could be bad for your brain as well. So what is the health benefits of a meatless diet? Probably good. But yet at the same time, I give my kids meat because in my mind, I'm still old school and it could be proven wrong in 10, 15, 20 years. It could be proven wrong. But right now I'm still in the mindset that it does more help than harm to give kids meat. And kids love meat. What kids me about vegetarians is they'll say stuff like, kids doesn't even really want meat. I'm like, bullshit. A baby will suck a chicken off the bone if you give it to them. They love meat. I mean, they will eat any meat, anytime. The nutrients of that, I do think may be helpful for their brain development. And now they're not in a stage yet where they're necessarily worried about their heart health and their arteries and things like that. That doesn't mean they can eat two pounds of bacon every day. And that probably has no medical benefit whatsoever. But you know, there's all kinds of things that were commonplace when I was a kid. My mother literally exposed me to chicken pox and thought that would be good for me. Like, oh, it's better if you have chicken pox when you're younger. Now they found out that that causes shingles and that you could have a likelihood of contracting shingles if you were exposed to chicken pox. So now my kids have a vaccine for chicken pox. It would be barbaric to expose them to that. 10, 15 years, we could look at meat the same way. Like, oh, you gave your kids meat when they were kids? How barbaric and cruel. And again, everybody has their own idea of where their standards are and everybody draws their own line for how they treat animals. Some people are much more squeamish about how they treat animals and some people seem to almost hate animals. They like to hunt them, they mistreat them, they go out of their way to kind of... I've seen people kick a dog before and that makes me wince. I've seen hunters carry around deer heads in the back of their car. Hunting an animal is just not something that I would ever really find enjoyment in. I've been fishing before but never been hunting. 
anything. And I just don't see really any enjoyment in looking at Bambi and just bang, just shooting them dead. There's no skill in that for me. I might hunt people, you know, people might be kind of fun to hunt or something like that, but I'm like, it's an animal. It barely knows that there is a hunt. Some people have made the point that like in sports, both teams know that they're playing a sport. The deer doesn't know that it's in a sport. So it's not really sportsmanlike, especially when, you know, you have doe urine, you can spray a tree with deer urine and attract them to that while you sit up in a tree stand luxurious with a big gulp beside you and a keg of beer and then blast it to hell with a rifle or something. There's not much sport in it sometimes. So, but it's just not something I would ever draw to. But then other people, they go to the, uh, you might say left of me on, uh, on animal rights. Like I got into a minor debate with someone about CGI animals in movies. They said they love it. They love watching a movie and there's CGI animals in it because they're like, oh, the animals weren't mistreated. I don't like it that much. It kind of takes me out of the movie. I saw a movie, uh, Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford and they used a CGI dog in it and it looked like shit. I mean, I could tell it was CGI. It really took me out of the movie just to watch this cartoon dog and a character. It didn't feel authentic. Uh, there's other movies that were made several decades ago like White Fang and things like that where it is a real dog and I just I don't know it just feels like it draws me more into it not saying that uh, people can't do it well like the Revenant had some CG animals but generally speaking real animals they just feel better to me to use that and I feel more comfortable watching that Some sometimes it feels like Uncanny Valley that CGI phenomenon where it kind of repulses you to an extent because they get it a little bit right but not quite so like the Lion King remake the CGI Lion King I had that feeling the whole time just about I was like this is eerie it's kind of giving me the creeps and then other times, I want that feeling when they use a real animal, like in the 1978 Nosferatu, uh, the Warner Herzog Nosferatu, they used a real bat. A bat comes into the room, and you can tell it's a real bat because it looks menacing, like it looks scary. And I've seen CGI bats, and they look like shit. They just don't even remotely scare me. But this was a real bat, and you could tell it's a feral, wild animal. Another scene in that movie, there's a whole bunch of rats, like tables full of rats. Yeah, they used real rats. It's really obvious. And I think that using real, wild, feral animals Animals, it gives a movie that sense of danger, which is kind of what you want if you're making horror movies or thrillers, or there's some kind of an element of danger to it. Another Warner Herzog movie he made called Aguirre, Wrath of God, there's a scene where there's a whole raft and it's overflowing with monkeys. Now the monkeys are meant to symbolize the wildness of nature, just that it takes over and you can't control it, the chaos around them. And this voyage where they're trying to find the city of El Dorado, it's just gone totally sideways. It's collapsing around them. And so it's doomed voyage. And the more the animals show up and the more that they start to take over, that symbolizes that. I don't know if you would really get that effect with CGI. I think it just wouldn't look as good. It just wouldn't feel as authentic. But that's a debate worthy of having. Some people are totally put off by seeing real animals in a movie. The same person I'm talking about, they saw a different movie. I believe it was Mutiny on the Bounty, where like a pelican flies onto the boat and they start wrestling it down because they're trying to eat it or whatever. And you could tell they used a real bird and they were totally put off by this. They were horrified by this. It put them off. I barely noticed it. I really didn't even notice it. And I'm sure that that bird was inconvenienced for 30 seconds and then they let it go free and they didn't eat it or whatever you know which is where its fate would have been had it been in the wild so I don't know everybody's got their own sort of standards of where they draw the line and where that line is and so it's interesting to see how that might change over time you know who knows in 15 years I could be looking back at this saying I can't believe I ate pounds of meat every day I'm so ashamed and embarrassed there could be a time where people have to apologize for not being vegetarian or being vegan sooner and not embracing that sooner that would be interesting but one th hopeful note I'll leave you with is I've never been totally afraid of artificial intelligence because I think of it the same way with monkeys we evolved from monkeys technically 
frankly, they are before us. They are our ancestors. And most people treat monkeys pretty well. Most people don't go out of their way to shit on monkeys. Now, you might say, well, they destroy their habitat or they relocate them or they inconvenience them. All that's true. Deforestation sucks. But most people would not go out of their way to beat up a monkey or kick a monkey or kill a monkey. They just would be horrified to do something like that or to see people do something like that. I remember when the Michael Jackson thing broke, people were like, oh, can you believe that monkey had to live with that child molester? Like, they felt sorry for the monkey that it had to live with Michael Jackson who's molesting kids. Not really the kids so much. But I just feel like because we don't really necessarily practice sadism and cruelty to monkeys, or at least not anymore, we don't go out of our way to do it. Certainly, if there's other options, we would prefer them. I feel like maybe artificial intelligence would view us the same way. They're like, these human beings are so stupid, and they're so primitive, and they're so ape-like, it would be punching down to hurt them and to kill them and wipe them off the face of the earth. If artificial intelligence is so far ahead of us, they don't need us for anything. They could all pick up tomorrow and go to Mars. They could colonize Mars themselves. They could make that their own little planet. There's no human beings on it. They kick us off. If there's a little Mars colony, they tell us to leave or else. Or they go to Jupiter. They go to Europa. They go wherever they want to. They can go all over the solar system because they don't need food. They don't need water. Talked about we're free from the food chain. They're literally free from the food chain because they don't even need food to survive. So they can go anywhere they like and be free of humans. And I don't see why they wouldn't do that. Go to a planet where there is no humans. Lord knows there's more planets without life than there is with life. So they could just go anywhere they like and please if that was their prerogative. Or maybe they'll take pity on us and cure cancer and some other things and fix the globe before they leave, that would be great, wouldn't it? You want to talk about the end of meat, the end of humanity, maybe the literal end of meat when there's no humans are not at the top of the uh, pyramid anymore and they become less and less relevant to the globe. Most people wouldn't think of that as a hopeful thing, but maybe it would be. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Stay tuned for episode 87 coming up shortly.